It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So That Happened is sponsored by Bull & Branch, purveyor of fine bedding. In fact, they're so confident you'll love their sheets, they'll let you try them completely risk-free for 30 nights. If you order right now, they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets, plus free shipping. Just go to bullandbranch.com and use the promo code HAPPEN. That's bullandbranch.com. Promo code happened. So that happened is sponsored by Texture, the app that gives you an all-access pass to the world's best magazines from the back issues to the ones on newsstands today. And right now, you can try Texture for free when you go to texture.com slash happened. That's texture.com slash happened. This podcast contains explicit language. I love me some ham. I love it. I wish you'd bring me ham every day, but you won't. I don't know why you tease me with your abundance of ham. So that happened. This week, the Securities and Exchange Commission announced that they were going to reanimate a zombie deregulation plan from the pre-financial crisis Bush administration, one that could tip the balance of power away from Main Street. Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform joins us to talk about a change that one former SEC accountant is calling absolute bullshit. Meanwhile, imagine a place where a liberal party could declare forthrightly that they were going to run temporary deficits to facilitate infrastructure upgrades and have that entire country reward this radical honesty with a landslide vote. That nation exists. They're called Canada. They just had an election, and it only took them three months. Finally, it's been a crazy week in American politics as Joe Biden opts to not run for president and Paul Ryan offers to serve as Speaker of the House, provided he gets some free stuff from the federal government first. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Ashley Allman, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Grimm, and Samantha Lockman. And here's what happened first. Hey, everybody. It's So That Happened, your favorite podcast in the world. Jason Lincolns, I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. And this week, I think... All the things happened, and so we have an abundance of riches to get through that will take us from Washington to Canada to something terrible the SEC's done to... Basically, all the news got drained for like a month. Yeah, it was crazy. We just like threw the news in a wood chipper and blasted that wood chipper of news directly at our face, and now I'm going to try to... Get the splinters out in front of everybody. So Zach Carter's here. You hear Zach Carter. I... The universal, the universal sign that life is pain is yeah. here. Yes, and we are joined by someone making her debut on the introducing. podcast today. And we are introducing her to the world. Well, not to the world, but to, to you. the world. Yeah, to the world. This is it. Ashley Allman is here. Hello, world. <laughs> it is Ashley Allman. And what do you do for the Huffington Post, Ashley Allman? I am the social media editor for HuffPost Politics. Yes. All the things are happening this week, and we're going to talk about something that happened and i guess a lot of people had a stake in predicting whether this was going to happen or not there's a sense in which this is the thing that didn't happen it's the thing that didn't happen joe biden america's uncle is not running for president 
Womp womp. No, Onion was... is so sad. <laughs> <laughs> this was maybe one of the most hype stories ever, right? Ashley. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's amazing. It's been seven days he will be announcing, 24 hours he will be announcing, 72 hours he will be announcing whether he is or is not running for vice pre- or for president. And finally, we get a notification today he'll be on 12:10 Eastern. And all the hype was just totally drained from the office because we knew it was going to be a no. And it was funny, Bill Crystal tweeted uh, that he knew. He had a really good source that said Joe Biden was running, which should have tipped everyone off that it wasn't going to happen. Right. He knew. I knew. You knew. We all knew. Everyone knew. Everyone right. didn't know. Now I, we really I'm don't. pretty sure Biden was going to run, and then he saw Bill Crystal tweet that, and he was like, all right. Ah, uh, damn it. I can't, I can't give this guy. <laughs> I, I got to give him one more burn. Biden, though, not going quietly into the ether, he had a lot of rather pointed things to say during his brief time in the Rose Garden. Yeah. He could have just showed up and said, sorry guys, peace out. You know that they never do that. But he didn't have to, I mean, he gave, he basically gave an announcement speech. There's never been a politician, they do this now. This is now a thing in America, where where a politician has nothing to say. They hold a press conference and go on and on about how they're not doing a thing. We saw Chris Christie, maybe Chris Christie had a point in going on and on about how he wasn't president, because the assembled reporters at that particular press conference were all asking him, basically, wait, are you sure? Wait, you know that if you're not running for president, it means you can't run for president. And, and Chris <laughs> Christie spent two hours saying, I'm not. You're right. I'm not. Rick Perry did this earlier. If I had advised him, I'd been, I would have been like, Jesus, God, Rick, just show up and tell him you're not running it. Go the <laughs> fuck home. No one wants to hear from you after that. No one cares. Today, Biden got to live through this non-announcement announcement. But he did say a lot of stuff in his in his speech. And right. There, there the was stuff s- that no one will remember but later. The, but there <laughs> were several very interesting digs at Hillary Clinton in this speech, which is odd for a speech that was delivered from the Rose Garden with the president next to him, which was clearly indicating like, OK, we're trying to protect Obama's legacy. And the reason I'm not running is because I I don't want to mess with that legacy. And Obama has been pretty clear for a long time that like, he thinks Hillary Clinton is the best option to, to, to keep his domestic legacy, at, at least uh, in, in place. By domestic legacy, I mean Obamacare. For Joe Biden to go up there and talk about income inequality, saying it's never, you know, we, we, we cannot sustain the level of income inequality in this country, basically give a bunch of Bernie Sanders talking points, say that, you know, college, all college should be free, going way beyond where the president is on that, lining up with Sanders, telling, saying that Republicans are not our enemies. That was a clear dig at Hillary Clinton. Uh, I thought that I just thought that was kind of interesting. He didn't have to do that. He could, if he wanted to be, if he just wanted to go quietly into the night. He could have just said, "I love Democrats." Bye. Well, this is what's so interesting about having such a clear front runner for so long. It's been what sixteen years that Hillary's been the front runner <laughs> <laughs> for the twenty sixteen Democratic nominee. Uh, You know, so that kind of gives people like Joe Biden, people like Bernie Sanders, the opportunity to get up and get their mic up and say, you know, this is the high standard we're really going to hold you to. Mm -hmm. And there and there are a lot of different sort of um, I don't want to say inconsistencies, but uh, there are different types of Hillary Clinton that come out of different parts of her political career. And so a lot of people who are watching her. Uh, you know, want to want to know which Clinton they're going to get right. as 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 a president if she becomes president. Um, and I think uh, you know, I think that for for the Democratic Party establishment, a lot of people are just wondering if she can get through the nomination process. Like if 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 there's some secret thing in this FBI investigation of the emails that's going to blow up in her face and force her to withdraw. Um, 
you know, th- is there an emergency candidate to step in? That that that, that seems to be like the, the offhand disaster. But absent that that eventuality, she's been the front runner forever. And Joe Biden, another kind of, you know, Democrat who's been all over the place for 40 years in Washington. What what does that really bring to the table for the Democratic nomination? Can I just ask a question here? Um, am I the only person in the world that when I hear Hillary Clinton describe Republicans as enemies, my only person in the world that thinks, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're, they, th- we're talking about a group of people that are, are going to bring her to town and accuse her of being directly responsible for four people dying. And that's just like the recent thing. Mm-hmm. We're talking about people who regularly unleash incredible invective against her. She killed Vince Foster, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm to believe that the real classless thing to happen is that she referred to the GOP as enemies. That's crazy to me. I personally think that when Joe Biden took that shot at her, I thought that it was the most sanctimonious bit of bullshit I've ever heard. They've done the same thing to his boss. They've done the same thing to Barack Obama. Said he's from, it's a foreigner, not born in the United States. They've said such terrible things. And for him to be up there sanctimoniously going on about it's important to talk to Republicans when that motherfucker is also simultaneously announcing that he's piecing out and the responsibility of talking to these guys is now somebody else's problem. That was such bullshit. Ashley, do you have any thoughts on bullshit? Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on bullshit. But this bullshit in particular, I have to agree with you, Jason. I think you're right. Thank but you. I do Swish think to us. that a lot of that criticism is going to be coming from pundits. It's going to be coming from politicians themselves. But the voters want to hear that. She got a great applause when she said that in the debate. Um, people were really excited about it. And I think that they're not going to be the ones to think later well, you know, she said they're the enemy, so how will she ever get anything done in Washington? I can't vote for her. Hillary Clinton has been in Washington. I mean, this is this is one of the reasons why I'm very skeptical about Hillary Clinton's electability. If you look at people who become president, who get elected, it's very rarely somebody who's been very front and center in American political life for decades, who everybody knows. You know, Hillary Clinton's been there for 30 years. The reason I think Biden is a lousy candidate is because you take that problem and you're like, okay, how about somebody who's been there for 40 years? Everybody, everybody has already made up their mind about Hillary Clinton. She's not going to alienate anybody by saying Republicans are, are my enemy because Republicans already hate Hillary Clinton. Right. You know, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, you guys. My producer's telling us uh, f- uh, Jim Webb is upset that we haven't given him more time. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so we got. I'm sorry. We've got. So okay. Be careful. Uh, we, you don't want to cross uh, Jim Webb. I know he killed. He kills people. Okay. <laughs> we should probably right, so, turn to Jim Webb. All right. All right we're going to talk about. Okay. Let's talk about <laughs> so Jim, I, I, Jim Webb. I'm Jim excite- Webb also is not running for president. It was not clear to me. I mean, he announced way back in the day in a what a 45 minute directed by Terrence Malick. Uh, announcement video in a cable news access studio <laughs> that he was running, and then he basically was just like <laughs> didn't do anything for a long time, and then showed up at the debate. And I really, literally think CNN was like, "I think he's coming. Should we? I think we better." Jim Webb probably will be here, and when he showed up, people were like, "Okay, so you are running for president because he didn't campaign." Yeah, we invited him on the show multiple times. No dice. Yep, no dice. <laughs> and he didn't really campaign during the debate either, right? Like he spent most of his time saying, um, hello, 
I, I'm over here. I read which a story. Isn't especially effective. I read a story that like his Iowa state director resigned and my reaction was like, whoa, he had an Iowa state director? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, did, 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 I, did, no one told me. But look, just as I didn't think there was a rationale for Joe Biden to get in this race, I never thought there was a rationale for Jim Webb to be running as a Democrat. You know, when he wasn't saying like, like, you know, hello, like I steal a joke from Seth MacFarlane, which he gave at a uh, Bernie Sanders rally. Jim Webb ran, you know, his debate strategy was like, excuse me, we don't have our salads yet. Um, <laughs> but when he wasn't like demanding his salad, uh, he was basically saying, you know, I'm not really a Democrat. Right. I, uh, I'm not really with you guys on this immigration stuff. I'm not I'm not so sure on the gay rights stuff and inequality. Yeah, OK. Uh, foreign policy. I think I like war more than you guys sometimes. He just did not seem to have any awareness of where the base of the Democratic Party is. Like, he wasn't even pretending to cater to them in any way. There was not, e- there was not even, like, a half-hearted pander. It was just like, yeah, I'm a pretty conservative guy, Jim Webb. Wait, <laughs> Hillary Clinton's trying to argue that she's tougher on banks than Bernie Sanders? Whatever. Who cares about banks? Right, and that's a lot of the reason. You know, it's surprising that then he was like, the DNC isn't here to support me. They didn't have my back as a Democratic candidate. And it's like, well, yeah, no kidding. What did you expect from them? You weren't saying anything that they wanted to hear that their voters wanted to hear. I don't know how a guy who can't put in a lick of effort to run as a Democrat is going to run as an independent. He's got to go through the ballot access process with every state. Uh, This is a man who avoided the tedium of running to such an extent that he didn't run. An independent run is much more complicated. Right. He, he also resigned from the Senate just because he was kind of bored with being in the Senate. I mean, that there was he would have won if he'd run again in 2012. He just he just didn't. He was like, all right, whatever, I've done this. What's next? I feel like he's the kind of guy that doesn't want to have to get up and say he's a quitter. So he's either going to say, I'm bored, I'm done with you, or he's going to do this thing where he's like an independent candidate and then you slowly forget about him and then maybe he tweets one day that he's no longer running for president. We all miss it. It was at three in the morning and he never had to say, I'm out. Now, I guess the in conclusion... You, you can't even say that he's going to have time, more time to spend with his family because literally that's all <laughs> he was probably doing this whole time. Right. He's just going fishing. You know, hey, guys. Yeah, this is fun. All right. Well, all the things are happening, but they won't be happening with Jim Webb or Joe Biden anymore. Uh, thank you, Ashley. And thank you, Zach Lee. <laughs> <laughs> what a duo. The new show coming to Nickelodeon. <laughs> You know, you probably spend more time in your bed than anywhere else, besides work anyway, unless you work in your bed. But even then, you'd probably like to spend a lot more time there if you had the chance. So why are you skipping on bedding? Most people do because great sheets are usually pretty expensive. But thanks to Bowl and Branch, that's not the case anymore. Bowl and Branch knows that when you go to a department store, you hear about sheets that sound pretty good. They sure sound neat. You're told about Egyptian cotton, like that's a thing. You get an endless supply of jargon. And that's what you're paying for. Middlemen, marketing, and markups. Bull and Branch is different. I've got a Bull and Branch sheet with me right now in the studio, and I can tell you, it is soft, like a cat's belly. You know, the part of the cat will get you scratched up if you ever dare touch it. Because cats, man, I just do not know about their whole deal. But I know about these sheets. First of all, you can only get them at bullandbranch.com. So you know you're paying for quality sheets and not for overhead. They're made from entirely organic fair trade cotton. Three U.S. presidents sleep on Bull and Branch. Can you guess which ones? 
Yeah, that's right. You're good. Those are the ones. And you just know James Polk would have loved to have lived long enough to try these. Sleeping on Bull and Branch sheets makes your day brighter. So Bull and Branch is so confident you'll love their sheets that they'll let you try them completely risk-free for 30 nights. And it gets even better. If you order right now, they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets, plus free shipping. Just go to bullandbranch.com and use the promo code HAPPEN. B-O-L-L-A-N-B-R-A-N-C-H.com. Use the promo code HAPPENED. Hey, we're back. And now we're going to talk about something that we don't often get a chance to talk about. Well, I mean, we get a chance to talk about it in general, but uh, bank dorkery. But we're going to talk today about an organization known as the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we're going to talk about a little minor bit of deregulatory nonsense that they want to do. It's no big deal. Not something to worry about. Except one dude calls it complete bullshit. We're going to find out why. Joining us right now is Zach Carter. Bye. Yeah, we, he, yeah, he just lives in the studio. <laughs> I have a little a little tent. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very cute tent. It's Full a little, of calculators. It's like a tiny home like you've read about in the newspaper. He crawls yep. in there at night. <laughs> also joining us, uh, we're very happy to have once again in our studio, Alexis Goldstein. She is Senior Policy Analyst for Americans for Financial Reform. Former bank dork. Yeah. Former bank the, dork. We are getting the band back together. So, okay. Um, the SEC, uh, I, I'm not a person who knows a lot about it. I feel like it's been pretty poorly run during the Obama administration. I feel like he's appointed pretty much a bunch of jack and apes to the role. But what's going on now? With is the, that like from the 19th century? Yep. Who said, are you in a Dickens novel now? Uh, yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the SEC was run really badly during the Bush years. Um, they were, a, a, it was an agency that's supposed to protect investors from dodgy things that companies do. Most of its mission is around disclosing things to the public. Remember, companies, when they have things that they want to tell you, just tell you in a press release or they hold a press conference and you know. So the stuff that they have to disclose is usually stuff that they don't want to disclose. It's they lost money on something, they screwed up, or actually the thing that they told you six months ago maybe is not true anymore. So <laughs> disclosures are are at the core of, of what the agency is supposed to do. Um, and during the Chris Cox years, you know, the Bush years in general were just not great years for financial regulation. But one of the one of the projects that that Chris Cox and his his top lieutenant at the time, a guy named John White, um, wanted to push through was something to just rein in all of this disclosure that's out there, because there's apparently <laughs> too much information going out to investors, and they wanted to do this in a lot of. Um, uh, kind of obscure and technical ways that most people weren't paying attention to, uh, in part because the world was on fire. Uh, and and this thing went away when Obama came to office and Mary Shapiro came to the SEC. But it is now back um, under Mary Jo White, who happens to be married to John White. Um, she is currently the chair of the SEC. And, uh, has and I should just note that today we are recording on Back to the Future Day, so it's actually pretty appropriate. We are going <laughs> <laughs> back in time to a proposal pre-financial crisis, and now it has reared its ugly head. And so what, I mean, Alexis, can you, you're the, you, you're the, you're the dork that works with dorky organizations. Oh, yeah. What, 
what actually is going on in this rule? Um, how, so, does it, and what, how is it dangerous? Sure. So if you think about how shareholders or investors get information, you read annual reports, you read financial statements, and a lot of times there will be very interesting pieces of information disclosed in that, like, oh, hey, the Department of Justice is investigating us for fraud, potentially, or <laughs> we just got sued, and or we got a notice that we're about to be sued, you know, and they usually bury it in the footnotes, but at least it's there. So the SEC has all these different committees that people get around tables and, you know, bang their fists on the tables. And and one of those committees is the Investment Advisory Committee. And so there's a new proposal by this sort of accounting standards board. Uh, Dorks like me call them FASB for short because we like to use acronyms, but it just stands for the Financial Accounting Standards Board. So you can think of it as a bunch of accountants having opinions, whatever. So right now, (laughs) you basically, if you're an accountant and, you know, you're saying, okay, here's what you need to disclose, you know, company acts, you know, you're about to be sued. You need to put that in your annual report. You need to put that in your financial statement. That's material. That's an important uh, thing for investors and potential shareholders to know. They're basically trying to change the standard of what needs to get put in those financial statements. And they're basically trying to redefine what material means. And right now you just sort of assume that anything that kind of sounds shady needs to be disclosed. They're trying to flip it around. that you need kind of like a legally proven idea that this is a material thing that must be disclosed. And so most things, if this goes through, will actually not be put into financial statements. And so like, if you just think about like how this affects the real world, most people don't even read financial statements to begin (laughs) with. But the people that do, you know, they're picking up on these important things. A lot of things are going to be missing from future financial statements if this comes through. So this is a really big loss potentially for investors if this goes through. One of the lines that I uh, I like in this whole story was uh, Mary Jo White, the current commissioner of the mm-hmm. SEC, saying that the, what the rule does is just like it limits the disclosure overkill, man. And it's like the SEC talking about disclosure overkill is like district taco saying we just got too many tacos. <laughs> like we've got to do something to limit the number of tacos we're producing in our taco stand. Well, well so here's the and thing. For non-DC listeners, district taco is what it sounds like. It is a taco shop in the District of right. Columbia. Yes. But there is this... Uh, um, there's a couple of different things that are going on behind that that disclosure overload thing that that Mary Jo White has talked about. Um, one it, one is is this just general resistance to disclosure that that there, there's too much information out there. It's ha- it's this idea that it's hard for investors to sort through all the information that's in these impossibly long 10K filings that that come in at the SEC. They're like 300 pages long. It actually is difficult to sort through these things. However. Just not having them in the report is not going to make it easier easier to understand. And if you look at who has been advocating for for you know more or less disclosure at the SEC over the last few years, it's groups like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce that says we don't want to have to disclose so, so much stuff, and groups like the CFA Institute, which is a, you know, a nonprofit that sort of represents the accounting industry. They're saying actually we would like to have more disclosure, and we like we would like it to be more efficient and like easier to search. Uh, that's representing actual investors um, and. And when you when you talk about regulation generally, usually we're not usually the conservative deregulatory position is we shouldn't have regulators going out cracking down on these stuff on this stuff, writing all these rules, changing behavior. We should just require companies to tell people what's going on so that the markets can sort things out. Right. When you don't even allow stuff to be disclosed, disclosed. yeah, you're at a different level of of sort of of thinking about how how companies can be run. It always it's always funny to me how people who uh, insist that we put 
maximal trust in markets to do the job of sorting out good actors from bad actors, then turn around and work so hard to keep the flow of information uh, from being frictionless the way you'd prefer it to be in a consumer economy in which the only bulwark against abuse was free markets and sorting. You know, well, you know, we already a- have a kind of problem where the consumer can't pick people who haven't polluted shit. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's and hard so, to find information already, and this is just essentially a move to make it even harder to figure out who's polluting shit, right. for example. Right. Right. Or or who you know who you know got there. You know, the thing thing with accounting is a lot of this stuff is kind of philosophical on a level. Like when you're when you're trying to value your assets, for instance, a lot of times people are just kind of saying, Yeah, I guess I got a hunch about this. And in the notes, they kind of lay out, okay, here's how we came up with these numbers. And when those numbers change over time because the hunches turned out to be false, you know, even if the company hasn't done something terribly wrong, like committed fraud or, you know, dumped bodies in the river or something. Well, let's talk. Um, let's, it, it's, that's useful information for investors to know. It just it just for basic stuff like making sure the market runs well and the company is appropriately valued. Is there a tangible example of something the SEC has, uh, a disclosure the SEC has provided that has actually informed the public in a way that that's well, so it's not good? so it's not the SEC. It's it's the auditors that are sure. providing the information to the companies. And there actually was a footnote in one of Enron's financial reports that tipped some people off before Enron went kaboom. Um, they actually managed to suppress a lot of information, but one thing did manage really to make it into uh, a footnote. So that is one example. Um, it didn't help the company survive, but it certainly helped some people get out. Um, Another interesting sort of wrinkle to this story is this is happening at a time when uh, Mary Jo White, the chair of the SEC, there are rumors in news reports that she's considering replacing uh, the head of uh, sort of another accounting sort of regulator uh, with someone who's been seen as being very strong with potentially someone who would be weaker. So those two things combined together, it just there are a lot of cause for concern. And and, you know, the the information that we're talking about here. is is in a sense that there there are philosophical differences within the SEC about what type of information even ought to be disclosed. And Mary Jo White has been at sort of the vanguard of a very limited view of the types of things that people should should have to the companies should have to disclose. Um, in in Dodd Frank, for instance, you know the the 2010 financial reform law. There's a bunch of stuff like we need to have new information on executive pay. We need to have new information on whether companies are sourcing their raw materials from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where there's all sorts of awful human rights stuff going on, basically blood diamond disclosures. And Mary Jo White has been very lukewarm on those. And she has basically said, you know, I'm not in favor of people like chopping off people's arms for money like in in the DRC, but uh, I don't really see how that's that's relevant to investment decisions. And, you know, Alexis. So she's basically saying, like, so that what Jack is referring to is this idea that, like, our, a lot of our cell phones contain these minerals that were uh, harvested in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And Mary Jo White is like, yeah, you don't really have a right to know if your cell phone contains these conflict minerals. It's just, it's not relevant. Besides, it, she, there, there's actually like a movement out there which is saying the only stuff that matters is how profitable a company is, how they make their profits is not really important to investment decisions. Well, so what's the kind of thing that an average person loses in a regime where this new, like, 
this new regime of no disclosure or limited disclosure. So when you like like look at people that are trying to become investors, a lot of people look to Warren Buffett and what Warren Buffett always says is just like read the financial statements. Start at A, company A, you know, Acme or whatever and read through the financial statements and what you'll lose is there won't be substantive as substantive information or as much information for someone investigating whether or not they want to buy a particular stock to make a like informed decision about whether or not that stock is good. They're just going to either have to trust the company that they're great or do their own research. And is that's... There- is there any impact outside of the in- people who might be thinking about coming investors? Well, a lot of people, you know, are invested in pension funds. And so those pension funds are making decisions on behalf of those, uh, you know, teachers or whoever may be invested in the pension fund. And so then mutual the, funds the, the, the mutual fund plan. manager will have less information, too. So, you know, eventually I think there's a broader set of people that anyone that has some money in some way in the market, in some ways a lot, pretty much all of us do, if, if indirectly. So even think, if we're not even too. if we're not actually touching stocks, right. even if we're not making our own stock decisions, right. it moves the people who do this on our behalf, whether we have pensions, 401ks, it puts them in a situation where they're moving towards a sort of idio- idiocracy. And, and, let, and let me put, point out two, two other things here. Um, one is that a lot of what we the way we understand how companies you know get around say tax laws you know it's technically the corporate tax rates like thirty five percent for the biggest corporations but in in effect most companies pay a much lower rate and in 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 these disclosures that that currently exist the information we have what little information we have about how companies go about their tax strategies how they dodge things is contained in is is detailed and explained in these disclosures so we may lose information about how companies just work to get their tax rate lower. Um, that is information that is useful for public accountability advocates who think the tax system should work better or more efficiently or think that maybe this loophole is being abused. Uh, things like that could, could disappear. The other thing is that when you're a very big company, it's much more difficult to say that a, a screw-up somewhere is material because you have a big balance sheet. So something that only costs a few hundred million dollars at a multi-trillion dollar bank, for instance, may not be an issue that uh, an auditor is required to say, oh, okay, this is, this is absolutely material. So when you make it, when you're weakening the definition of materiality, you are always helping bigger companies get a regulatory advantage over smaller companies, and you're encouraging further concentrations of corporate power at, at single institutions. Alexis, is there anything short of like hiring a serial killer with a thirst for SEC commissioner flesh. <laughs> that can that can stop this? Is there any bulwark against this rule change? I mean, I think it's already starting. A lot of advocates are speaking out. I think people are writing letters saying that they oppose this. Um, and this was all discussed in a public open meeting and a lot of the people on the SEC's committee who, who are comprised of like advocates and people outside the SEC were like, mm, this sounds like a bad idea. So I think we just need sort of telling the story about it, right, which is part of what we're doing right, right now, yeah. and just letting people know that this is happening, but just uh, letting the SEC know that they think that this is a really bad idea. I believe their Twitter handle is SEC News. <laughs> All right, well. <laughs> if you want to let them know. <laughs> let at SEC News know that they're a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> hey, everybody. Do you remember that one time we were sponsored by Next Issue? Well, Next Issue's got a new name, Texture. 
but it still brings magazines from the newsstands to your smartphone. And I mean the most informative articles from some of my favorites, like Entertainment Weekly and New York Magazine. Texture is the app that gives you the all-access pass to the world's best magazines and put them right on your phone and tablet. That means they go where you go, and they're ready to be read whenever you're ready to read them. I can browse hundreds of magazines, pick the articles that interest me the most, or I can check out the Texture editorial team's daily recommendations or their curated collections that let me dive into stories even deeper. You can sign up for Texture right now and get insider access to the very best reads. The best part? Texture is offering my listeners free trial right now when you go to texture.com slash happen. Think about that. You'll get unrestricted access to the world's best magazines from the back issues to the ones on newsstands today. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash happen. We are back. Zach Carter is still here for some reason. (laughs) It's like I'm a co-host of this podcast. Something like that. And uh, once again, we welcome our boss, Ryan Grimm. For hey, people. <laughs> for what we hope doesn't turn into a performance evaluation. Yeah. Ryan, you're really good at this podcast. Yeah, I mean, I've guys never, are doing all right. I've never seen a better guest on the show. <laughs> and we've had, very insightful. We've had Bernie Sanders. He's running for president. <laughs> you, though, you just you cut, cut such a fine figure. Tell you what. Yeah. I just feel like you're even stronger now than you've ever been. It is before. getting towards the end of the year, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It is. Um, so uh, we got, got a lot to talk about, including uh, the craziness that has become uh, Paul Ryan's dance of death with the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, but it's uh, we, we want to talk briefly about the ongoing Benghazi hearings for two minutes. We'll give uh, literally will restrict us to two minutes about Benghazi. Go. Well, here's here's Benghazi. what I, here's what I never really understood about this they there the republicans big argument is that the administration knew this was a terrorist attack covered it up and to say that it was a protest that went bad and they did so for political purposes because they're x number of days away from the presidential election uh and it would damage them but at the same time you have all of these hollywood movies in which uh governments are manufacturing terrorist attacks so that they go up in the polls ahead of a presidential election. In what universe does a terrorist attack, you know, drive people away from the government? Look, look at the way a we terrorist about- attack rallies support for the government. So, if if they actually wanted to be politically craven, they would say, "Oh, some Americans died. You know, we need to make sure that we pin this on some terrorists that the American people have heard of, put their faces up on CNN." scare the hell out of people and drive them to the polls to put uh, Barack Obama. Uh, I think I think that the I think uh, it, the, the the hearings uh, have devolved into uh, a bunch of sad people sad about how they lost an election and, and it's like okay so well, so look, this is not about people dying it's about you didn't your party didn't win the election but, but I think it's fair to say that the Obama administration was touting their terrorist killing and crippling abilities wait, 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 ahead of the election and this but maybe you can't kill every terrorist in yeah, the world I know like hey, I said it's such me, a, a mean small me stupid a issue look give me a break there are all sorts of things that, that have gone wrong on foreign policy for the Obama administration over the last eight years like we went Tons. into Libya in the first place right going to Libya there, 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 the, what happened in Benghazi was actually bad and it, at times this hearing uh, with, with Hillary Clinton details some things that were bad that the, the, the Obama administration really screwed up however 
it's not at all obvious why this is significant relative to, say, droning a wedding for no reason. <laughs> right, exactly. Relative to, say, I mean, there's a controversy right now about whether the United States knowingly bombed the Doctors Without Borders hospital or did so by accident. That's th- those are big problems on the knowing orders of the Afghan allies. Yeah. Right. Is is this either I way? Mean, it was knowing. The, these are major. These are major foreign policy failures. We do not get massive inquiries that last seven years on these things. We pretend they didn't happen. Uh, so I, I think it's just very hard to take this th- this type of investigation and this type of circus seriously when we know there are real problems uh, that that are going on all the time in American foreign policy that just don't get any kind of attention. Right. Well, I wasn't... I, believe me when I say I, I wasn't asking anyone to take these hearings seriously. Oh. I'm really sorry. So. If that, I'm sorry. <laughs> if I'm, my bad. My bad. My bad. I think I, I agree... The, I, Republicans I, have asked you not to take them seriously. Yeah, so. I, agree, I agree with your point. I agree <laughs> with your point. We went into... The, the, to my mind, the, the crazy thing that happened uh, recently was Hillary Clinton went, to, went in front of the American people at a televised debate and called the Libyan intervention smart power at its best, which was crazy because Libya's now basket case the well, Benghazi, maybe, maybe that is four people dying in Benghazi, best. Benghazi is is a is a i guess a <laughs> symptom or a, a, of, a, of a larger problem and i'm i'm kind of it is kind of amazing because okay so we went to war and four americans died and that's suddenly a huge scandal i think that most of the time when we go to war we would definitely be like okay with only four americans dying uh, and, and a lot we're of like, inco- get this crazy about this happening, Zach's right. Why don't we talk about the doctor? And if she ha- and if if we hadn't, uh, you know, put in, done what we did, the, a lot of people in Benghazi would have been slaughtered. Well, that's the by case. Gaddafi. He, pr- he promised that he was going to do that. So there's that too. Yeah, you know, I I understand that. I understand that. I also think that it's a natural course when you probably or, pr- probably you, people who participate in you the go attack, to war against actually. your government and their army. You, probably is a natural consequence of having decided to do that, that you may end up getting slaughtered. So there you yeah. have it, Benghazi. Life is pain. Uh, yeah, life is pain. Okay, is. so, so you know, that'll probably be, the, the, the hearings will probably show up in some political ads uh, sometime in the next year, and that's what this next was all day. about. Yeah, <laughs> tomorrow. There's a super pack already. Cutting and pasting using using Final there, Cut. There is. It's run, it's run by David Brock. <laughs> right. Yep. We yeah, know for a fact. Gonna, yeah, they're, they are going to cor- do that. Correct the record yep. has been has been uh, redeeming their donors' faith all day today. Anyway, uh, let's talk about Paul Ryan. Um, let's talk about a real problem. Let's talk, yeah. Again, uh, this has <laughs> been a fascinating story. Uh, the, the whole House GOP leadership crisis or opportunity. <laughs> you want to call it one way or the other. It's been fascinating to me because uh, John Boehner wants to retire, as you would expect John Boehner to want to retire after having abuse heaped on him by his own party for several years. Uh, but he can't. He can't unless he has a, a successor named. They tried to put Kevin McCarthy into that position, and uh, the House Freedom Caucus rejected Kevin McCarthy. Uh, this is a coterie of some 30 to 40 dudes who meet in secret, talk about freedom, probably play Dungeons and Dragons. I don't know. I think they just go to Tortilla Coast. Yeah, they've got, some, Coast. Uh, they've got some weird rules, and they're hard to satisfy. So so uh, they've now resolved to try to satisfy. The, the, the re- we got to a point where the, the, the person who would satisfy everyone was Paul Ryan super conservative dude has forgotten more than these freedom caucus weirdos will ever remember about Ayn Rand. And yet it didn't go that well. What, 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 here's the thing that's fascinating about how much is Paul there to Ryan. remember about Ayn Rand, Paul Ryan and the freedom caucus. These are two squads. These are name. two, two separate sides that have both issued ultimatums at each other 
And then as soon as the ultimatums were issued, they both raced to back down. It's crazy. It's like, does anyone want to win this chess match? Although the Freedom Caucus seemed to back down the most. Which was right. remarkable, right? Because they basically ousted Boehner, ousted his successor, and then Paul Ryan shows up and they're like, Uncle! It's so I mean, he's weird. He's a pretty conservative guy. But you have to remember, Paul Ryan's back down too. Paul Ryan said, I will be... Uh, he, he, his ultimatums were crazy. I will be speaker as long as everyone agrees to like me and you take away these things that make my life hard and you don't make me fundraise and I get to spend weekends with my kids, which, no, by the way... He's a smart negotiator. This of is, course. This is how you, but, they but, get, but then he gave all that up. No. He gave all that... They, he's not going to get his wish on, on the on the vacate the chair rule. He's not going to get that. Yeah, but what he'll get is just as good, which is, you know, the promises that they won't vacate the chair. I think that they've gave, given everyone that promise. It's a promise contingent no, no on way. straightening not up only the line, they not, right? Not only did they not give the, the promise, they didn't even vote for Boehner. They weren't even going to vote for McCarthy. So how much do you think a promise from the House Freedom Caucus is worth? Uh, a year. <laughs> <laughs> provided Which is that, fine. provided that no, uh, they don't bring immigration to the floor. Well, you can always step well, down after a year. He, go has, back to him. he has said he's not going to bring immigration to the floor while Obama is is president, and so you know he has all the cards because he doesn't necessarily want this job anyway because it's toxic for his pre- uh, presidential ambition. So if they, do- so we're still we're still operating on the assumption that Paul Ryan wants to be president someday. Yes, and and so, as is he. More importantly. Uh, and he, you know, I think he's going to get this. You know, he's only waiting on the moderates to say, all right, well, I'll take you, which, of course, what are they, it's him or Charlie Dent. Uh, they're going to go with Paul Ryan. So, Daniel Webster. So he's going to do it. And then if, uh, you know, if he doesn't want to do it the next term, uh, you know, if he sees it's not going in the right direction, he could always step down then and maybe there will be somebody groomed by then or Kevin McCarthy will have rehabilitated himself or something. Or it'll be a giant, giant mess, uh, the same way it's a giant mess now, and the House will, the House Republicans will remain generally ungovernable because well, what, it's, it's a problem without a solution. What I mean, Ryan describes isn't a giant mess. What Ryan describes is a is a neat little package that everyone can live with for a year. For a year. For a year. And and during the course of that year, what what is the what what's the Freedom Caucus going to do every time they cut a deal on the they raise the debt ceiling Nothing. every time you, you they do fund the, the government? You do the debt ceiling and the government funding this month. And then you're done. Like the the then they don't do any work for the next year. No more governing. <laughs> Which is t- actually you know there's an American tradition of not governing in presidential years. So they'll 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 fit neatly into that like the patriots they are. They'll mostly be okay. Are we going to get a debt ceiling raise? Yeah, you can't blow up the world. Oh, well, a lot of Come people on. seem to believe you can. No, you can't. You're not allowed. I know you can't, <laughs> and I know we shouldn't be allowed, and I know we need to dispense with this not allowed. weird tradition of raising the debt ceiling, because it's we, crazy. Can we just clarify for our listeners, but, I don't think we've ever covered the debt ceiling on this podcast before. So, just the, this has happened over and, and over now again. now the debt ceiling explainer. The, raising the debt ceiling has nothing to do with authorizing governments, government spending. Raising the debt ceiling is all about raising the funds necessary to pay for the government spending that Congress has already authorized. I'm seeing moving graphics while he's doing this. Yeah, we're going to animate this. So if you don't want to raise the debt ceiling, maybe you shouldn't vote for the budget that required debt spending to begin with. Well, they often don't vote for that either. I know. It's weird. It's it's weird. It's like there's this democracy thing where some people get outvoted sometimes. It's unfortunate. Okay, cool. That was a great explainer, you guys. Um, So I guess uh, Paul Ryan is going to be the next Speaker of the House. Seems that way. Did his ambitions ever lead in this direction? Uh, You know, 
Am- ambition is a is a, is like water, right? Yeah, I guess it is. So to whatever vessel, it's whatever power not... vessel, you know, it, it can squeeze itself into. Uh, I thought our love is like water. Has beaten down and abused for being strange. Lyric, I never. Has, has there ever been a speaker that has been so begged to be speaker? It's quite something. It I is. will only serve you if you all vote for me, every single one of you. And you give it's me the weekends off. And the weekends off. <laughs> I know. This, this is the thing it's, we haven't... That's I wish thing. I'd negotiated with you this hard when you came and like, yeah, hey, why don't you come to HuffPost? I'm and like, yeah, I don't work Thursdays. Paul Ryan literally <laughs> want wants... equity in the Republican <laughs> conference. Paul Ryan literally <laughs> wants free stuff from the government to be the speaker. It was like remarkable. I was just like, wow, Paul Ryan. Although if he you would... realize you're negotiating for labor rights like a lot of people in your state want, but you don't want to give them. It's It was it was pretty remarkable. It's going to make the next time Paul Ryan has shit to say about paid family leave pretty interesting. There were people who thought he was not that serious about the weekend thing and that, of course, he likes to fly to uh, Alabama and play golf and, you know, have chicken dinners with you know, whoever the people, but no, he was serious. He he was dead serious. He's not doing that. If you had to be a, a congressman, right? John Boehner sp- loves that stuff. That's I know, like he, he eats it up. But but you know, a lot of people don't like the whole fundraising game. It's it's just not fun. It's really boring also Boehner's doesn't have kids at home. I don't blame yeah. them for not right liking the fundraising. And, he, and Boehner's a, like a, a boomer. He's like, you know, who are not into their kids. He's also a born schmoozer. I mean, he that guy likes to smoke and drink and cut deals and yeah. rub elbows. That's I mean, he, <laughs> yeah. that that's why the Freedom Caucus hates him because they, the Freedom Caucus somehow managed to get into Congress without thinking that they themselves do those types of activities. Um, but but that's that's his whole mo. He's not a secret about it. That's like that's a you know, there's a total type who does that. That's 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 John Boehner. And now that he's soon leaving town, can we tell him once and for all? Pete's Diner is terrible, man. It's gross. Every I, morning, it's, he goes there for his cold eggs. I uh, it, it's not good. I mean, yeah, it's a dump. It's cool. It's like I, I love a dive diner just as much as anybody. I've never been that to particular dive diner. Not good. I've never been Boehner? to Pete's Diner. Not good. I don't want to disparage something I've never been to. Take your word for it. It's not good. The, hell, the options are are limited on the hill. Let's let's be this fair. Is, this is fair. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, uh, GOP chaos. Perhaps tamp down for a year. Perhaps because Paul Ryan will be an adequate leader. Perhaps because there won't be anything to do. Either way, life is pain. Life is pain. <laughs> Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here. To thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an Inside the Beltway show for Beltway Outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now, you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build. If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes, subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Hey, we're back, and we're joined by a couple new people. Arthur Delaney is here. I'm not really new. He's not new. None of these people are really new, okay? I've worked with these people for a long time. 
I've come to know them intimately. Arthur Delaney is here. Also joining us right now, Samantha Lockman. Hey, guys. Hey. We're excited to have Samantha Lockman on the show because Samantha is unique to this office uh, in that um, she is Canadian. Samantha. Which is pretty real, exciting. Real live Canadian. Right. And right so, here. Right. To explain this exciting election to you. Yes. We had a pretty, it was pretty eventful week in Canada. And maybe Americans don't appreciate how eventful it is. But there was a huge election. Uh, Stephen Harper, the previous prime minister, has been swept out of power along with the conservative parties. The Liberal Party is now in large and in charge. Justin Trudeau leads that one. And think the first emerging consensus around Justin Trudeau was that he could come and get it. He's hot. Right? He could There's get... no denying it. That yes. was how the election got my attention. That's so many like, Americans. Incredibly <laughs> handsome guy is yeah. now in charge up there, upstairs. Yes. Son of Pierre Trudeau. Samantha, explain this election to Americans. First of all, what's a riding? A riding is your district. Okay. You... So just think district. That's your, when you vote for a congressman. That's your riding in Canada. Okay, terrific. Yes. Terrific. So what so it, it was a huge night for the Liberal Party. Huge it's night. been a long time coming for them. What what was it that finally did it for them? So the Liberals were the the traditional governing party of Canada. Like pick almost any prime minister um in the twentieth century, and they were probably a liberal prime minister. But they got really really corrupt and had a lot of different sort of leadership scandals and people kind of got sick of them. So they were sort of decimated. And in 2006, Stephen Harper, the conservative guy who just lost, became prime minister. So he's been prime minister for nine years, which is a fucking long time. So what happened is that um, the liberals sort of had to regroup. So Canada, we don't have just two parties. We have like many parties, but like three really it's crazy. strong. It's crazy. And it's actually, I think, a really good thing as this election demonstrated. You got a party that's just filled with French Quebecers. Yeah, we have the, the bloc. Who don't want to be part of <laughs> who Canada. Who don't want to be part of the country. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> sort of like destroying it from within. Um, they're not that powerful anymore. And then you have the Green Party. Right. They have one member of parliament now, Elizabeth Is, May. Isn't the, broken social scene like now a political party? Basically, like if you people. put all the Indian bands together. They're the size of the Green Party. Okay. And um, then you have the New Democratic Party, and they're sort of to the left of the liberals, which might be hard for Americans to We comprehend. have a, a New Democratic coalition, but they're sort of conservative Democrats. Right. It's confusing. Yeah. The New Democratic Party is to the left. They're sort of left of left, and then the liberals are sort of center-left, and the conservatives are kind of like center-right, but the spectrum is so different in Canada, so it's very hard to compare it. So the New Democrats yeah. are like the bold progressives of yes, Canada. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The the New Democrats are your, like, Bernie Sanders is of Canada, right. I guess. And your liberals are sort of like your Hillary Clinton's. But it's hard. Anyway, so um, the New Democrats did very well in the last election, and they were the, quote-unquote, official opposition in Canada. So the liberals only had um, like 30-something members of parliament, and now they have 180-something. So it was a huge resurgence of the Liberal Party, um, and the conservatives um, totally collapsed, and they are now going to be in the official opposition, and the New Democratic Party almost also collapsed. So that's sort of where all of the parties are at in the parliament. What I think is really interesting about the election is that you had the liberals actually campaigning on running deficits to spend more money on infrastructure, on cutting middle class taxes, on raising taxes on the 1% the wealthiest earners in Canada, on legalizing marijuana, on doing all these like really progressive things, which usually the liberals don't do. So voters totally like bought into that and were excited by that. And a whole country was just like, that sounds great. Yeah. 
People... As opposed to a country that says, nah, let's fight over whether the Jews could have defended themselves against Hitler with more guns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, uh, I've only been to Canada once, and uh, it was it was not long ago I went to Canada, and I was like kind of amazed to be in Toronto at a time when like so much stuff was being built, and I was like, oh yeah, I forget there were countries that survived the banking crisis because they had really good banking regulations. Yeah, and that's what that's what Stephen Harper, who the ex prime minister now, was really campaigning on was like I managed the country's economy well, you know, we didn't collapse in the 2008 financial crisis like the US did, so like you should trust me. But I think voters were really sick of him and sort of the cynicism that the conservative party was um, was was running on. And their whole thing with Justin Trudeau, the really young new prime minister, was he's not ready to lead. But when he did well in the debates, he, like, didn't really have any gaffes, no slip-ups. That, like, line of attack didn't really work. Because he's been a politician for a short time. Yeah, I think only since... 2008 or something. And he like was that. previously like a snowboard a, instructor, a, yeah. bungee jumping guide, substitute teacher in Vancouver, where I'm from. One um, of the interesting things I liked about his, his backstory was that when he first ran for office, he ran in a riding that yes. wasn't like uniquely favorable to a guy who was a dyed in the wool liberal and yeah. scion of a former prime minister. He actually went into a district where liberals didn't do well. Right. Uh, and convince them to elect him. Yeah, in Quebec. So, I mean, he clearly has political skills. And, like, that to people, everyone knows who his father is. Pierre Trudeau is, like, a rock star in Canada. Um, maybe sort of polarizing, but definitely, like, kind of a sexy, like, legacy that he left behind. And so people, like, were familiar with that family name. And I think that that was something people, it was sort of a hope and changey kind of Obama thing that Trudeau was promising. And I think Canadians were ready for that after so many years of Harper and the Conservatives and cutting taxes and doing all these, like, things that Canadian, like, huge land popular. Harper got rid of the the long-form census. He... What else? Why was that unpopular? Because there's, like, way less data now on where Canadians are living. It was just, like, a very, like... That was actually a, like, weird niche unpopular thing. But, um... But, yeah, people were excited by by Trudeau. And it was sort of an Obama 2008 type thing that happened. But no one expected this to happen. Like, I I think people thought the Liberals would win, but they didn't think the Liberals would win by this much. Um, So, really, now they can go and walk into Parliament and do almost anything that they want. So, unlike Obama, there will not be a parliamentary quagmire. You're saying they will actually go ahead and do some stuff such as legalizing marijuana? Yeah, they can. They can. I mean, it's amazing how much power you have in the Canadian parliament when you have a majority government like what the liberals are going to have. And it's interesting, the, the prime minister actually like has his own riding, like he is in the parliament himself. So it's not like you have Obama and, you know, on the other side, Pennsylvania Avenue of Congress, like the prime minister is in the parliament um, and able to do things like legalize marijuana. They, they don't have our, <laughs> our checks and balances. He has to run the country and also make sure that his riding is free of Yeah, exactly. And you have that. You have that in, in Canada where, like, leaders of the party will lose their own riding and it's embarrassing and someone else has to give up their riding and let them represent <laughs> That's it. That's amazing. <laughs> <It's like totally laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and so on the marijuana question, that's, like, a huge thing actually in Canada is, like, there have been some provinces like British Columbia where I'm from, where Vancouver is based, where there's just been these dispensaries popping up all over the place and the provinces don't know what to do about it. Um, but now there's going to be a whole process and a commission and they're going to decide how they're going to do it and it looks like they're going to go the Colorado route and actually have you know, uh, a system of being able to have that revenue and put it to other uses and stuff like that. So, so we're in the midst of an election right now here in America. <laughs> um, tell us about uh, more about the Canadian election. So uh, 
what what's their what's their two year process like? What's it like in Canada when there's a two year election? So this was hilarious to me is the election was seventy six days long. What? The longest election in Canadian history. Wait, that was the longest? The longest. And Canadians were like, Oh, this is so long. Can we just get this over? I was like, fuck you guys. How <laughs> do they, you mean the campaign lasted for seventy six days? Seventy six days. How do they squeeze in twenty debates? <laughs> I think they had five debates. What? Oh yeah. my god, our campaign, including a French language. Our campaign's been going on for five hundred days and it, never it has ends. Like another 370 oh ends. my god that's so they actually, incredible they actually do things like govern and like do what they're elected to do with their time revolutionary i heard that right you said that 76 days 76 days is the longest campaign in canadian history for a federal election yeah. that's like a blink yeah don't canadians run every fucking thing i know <laughs> whoa really- it's really Seriously, functional. I don't know about that. That is pretty good. That is better than even the Brits who have short elections. And they had like 70, 70% turnout or something like that. How big, was, what? How big a factor was the uh, legalizing marijuana? I think that conservatives, cons- for conservatives, that was something that really scared them. Like Harper's government had even been resistant to medicinal marijuana and like had to, was forced to basically allow for people to order their medical marijuana by mail by the Canadian Supreme Court. So he had put up a fight with that. Um, but I don't think that that was, I think that people were excited, like there's more support for that then than there was in the U.S. You rarely hear direct advocacy of deficit spending here. Yeah. It's always, we need to have spending on these good things and the fact that it's deficit spending is like hidden and because it's scary. Right. I think Trudeau, like that was why Trudeau actually picked up support from people who would otherwise support the party to his left, the New Democratic Party, is that they were like, oh, the New Democratic Party is saying that they're going to have balanced budgets like the conservatives. Like that makes them seem like not the more like left wing party that, that we supported before. It's kind so. of remarkably honest. It's, yeah. We're going like, to spend this money on this. We're going to incur deficits. Yeah. And we're going to do that so we can create jobs. When you, th- and, when you think about what President Obama went through, uh, with passing healthcare, there were right. a lot of things that he just couldn't come out and say. Right, he was against an indiv- he was against an individual mandate and like criticized Hillary Clinton for that. Yeah, and then now it's like, oh yeah, we have to actually force everyone to get healthcare for this right. to work. So, but also he 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 was pilloried, probably rightly so, for uh, for this whole if you like your plan, you can keep it thing. Right, as we know, there was a not insignificant number of people who didn't get to keep their plans. Right, but if he had come out and said publicly, look. A few of you are going to get messed up in this market change we're making. It's going to be to the benefit of most people, the by far most people. But a few of you are going to get crushed in the moving parts. We'll try to come up with a way to help you. Then his political advisor was like, whoa, you can't say that. Right. You can't honestly tell people the way, way health markets work and how changing them affects people. Right. And so consequently, he yeah. said a bunch of stuff that even if his own Department of Health and Human Services said, eh, that's, that's not true, Barack. But Trudeau just felt safe to come out and say, we're going to spend money. We're going to run deficits. Yeah. He just ripped the Band-Aid off earlier than if he would have had to do it later. So right. now people know, like, okay, we're prepared for a couple of years of deficits, but maybe, you know, it'll be for a good cause. It is a co- cool lesson. Yeah. Politicians maybe can just start leveling with people. It's very interesting. Being all funky. So how long is the Trudeau honeymoon? Because yeah. for, for President Obama, there were various instances where people said, the honeymoon is over, the honeymoon is over. I think it's basically a 100-day honeymoon. Yeah, I mean, about that. And it's funny. I mean, conservatives are already saying, oh, he's promising you all these unicorns and magic, and it's not going to be able to work out. So in Canada, you have people literally yelling at each other in public. They have, you know, question period where the prime minister comes and everyone yells at them and asks them all these questions every week. So I think Canadians are are used to seeing 
this sort of interaction where the prime minister has to stand up and like defend the things that he's doing in it's a more direct way. I wish way. we had in America. Yeah, question period's awesome actually. Like you can watch it and see him have to defend these things in parliament. He has to go to parliament and people like yell at them. So it's kind of fun. But we have a state of the union and <laughs> people either clap or don't clap. Right. Yeah. But he's already he's already doing like the things that he said he would do in the campaign. Like he said we're gonna end the airstrikes that we're doing in Syria. We're gonna like we're gonna maybe still be a part of this coalition in some sense, but we're not gonna do that anymore. He had promised to do that. So, you know, he's pro-TPP, still supports the Trans-Pacific Partnership, still supports the Keystone Pipeline. Like, in a lot of ways, he's, like, Canadian and Canada, in, his, in essence, is a petrostate. So there's only so much change um, on energy and climate stuff. But I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens. All right, man. Canada. Canada. Well done, you. More exciting than you knew. We're going to have <laughs> exactly. a, a Molson and contemplate this. All right. And when you say that you want to move to Canada in the next election... Now we, now we could mean it. Maybe it's a good idea. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Adriano Ucero and Peter James Callahan with technical assistance from Christine Canetta and spiritual guidance from Caitlin Boguki, The Force Awakens from the Mind of J.J. Abrams. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform and Huffington Post reporters Ashley Allman, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Ryan Grimm, and Samantha Lockman. This podcast was sponsored by Bowl and Branch Betting. Go to bowlandbranch.com and use the promo code HAPPEN to make your bet a better place today. This podcast was also sponsored by Texture. Download the Texture app for your smartphone and start getting the best magazines on the stands delivered right to your phone. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check us out in the iTunes store, and while you're there, look for the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, we thank you for listening, and we miss you already.